Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, episode 39, Dower Street. One bright afternoon, towards the close of the autumn, the sun shining straight down one of the wide, clean, stony streets of the city, with a warmth which he had not been able to impart to the air. A company of schoolgirls, two and two, in long file, mostly with innocent and for human beings, rather uninteresting faces, was walking in orderly manner. A female grenadier at its head, along the pavement more than usually composed, from having the sun in their eyes. Amongst the faces was one very different from the rest, a countenance almost solemn and a little sad, of still regular features in the eyes of which, by loving eyes, might have been read uneasy thought, patiently carried, and the lack of some essential to conscious well-being. The other girls were looking on this side and that, eager to catch sight of anything to trouble the monotony of the daily walk. But the eyes of this one were cast down, except when occasionally lifted in answer to words of the schoolmistress, by whose side she was walking. They were lovely brown eyes, trustful and sweet, and although, as I have said, a little sad, they never rose even in reply to the commonest remark without shining a little. Though younger than not a few of them, and very plainly dressed, like all the others, she was not so girlish, was indeed, in some respects, more of a young woman than even the governess who walked by the side of them. Suddenly came a rush, a confusion, a fluttering of the doves, whence or how none seemed to know, a gentle shriek from several of the girls, a general sense of question and no answer, but as their ruffled nerves composed themselves a little, there was the vision of the schoolmistress poking the point of her parasol at a heedless face radiant with smiles, that of an odd-looking lad, as they thought, who had got hold of one of the dainty gloved hands of her companion, laid a hand which considered conventionally was not that of a gentleman upon her shoulder, and stood without a word, gazing in rapturous delight. "'Go away, boy! What do you mean by such impertinence?' cried the outraged Miss Kimball, changing her thrust and poking in his chest the parasol with which she had found it impossible actually to assail his smiling countenance. Such a strange-looking creature, he could not be in his sound senses, she thought. In the momentary meantime, however, she had failed to observe that, after the first start and following tremor, her companion stood quite still and was now looking in the lad's face, with roseate cheeks and tear-filled eyes, apparently forgetting to draw her hand from his or to move her shoulder from under his caress. The next moment, up with hasty yet dignified step, came the familiar form of their own minister, the Reverend Clement Sclatter, who with reproof in his countenance, which was red with annoyance, and haste laid his hands on the lad's shoulders to draw him from the prey on which he had pounced. Remember, you are not on a hillside, but in a respectable street, said the Reverend gentleman, a little oddly. The youth turned his head over his shoulder, not otherwise changing his attitude, and looked at him with some bewilderment. Then not he, but the young lady spoke. 
Gibby and I are old friends, she said, and reaching up laid her free hand in turn on his shoulder as if to protect him, for needlessly, with such grace and strength before her, the vision of an old horror came rushing back on the mind of Ginevra. Gibby had darted from his companion's side some hundred yards off. The cap which Mr. Splatter had insisted on his wearing had fallen as he ran, and he had never missed it. His hair stood out on all sides of his head, and the sun behind him shone in it like a glory, just as when first he appeared to Geneva in the peat moss, like an angel standing over her. Indeed, while to Miss Kimball and the girls he was a mad-like object. In his awkward, ill-fitting clothes, made by a village tailor in the height of the village fashion, to Geneva he looked hardly less angelic now than he did then. His appearance judged without prejudice was rather that of a cellar boy on shore than a shepherd boy from the hills. Miss Galbraith, said Miss Kimball in the tone that indicates nostrils distended, I am astonished at you. What an, ex an example to the school. I never knew you misbehave yourself before. Take your hand from this, this very strange looking person's shoulder directly. Geneva obeyed, but Gibby stood as before. "'Remove your hand, boy!' instantly cried Miss Kimball, growing more and more angry, and began knocking the hand on the girl's shoulder with her parasol, which apparently Gibby took for a joke, for he laughed aloud. "'Pray do not alarm yourself, ma'am,' said Mr. Sclatter, slowly recovering his breath. He was not yet quite sure of Gibby, or confident how best he was to be managed. "'This young gentleman is Sir Gilbert Galbraith, my ward. "'Sir Gilbert, this lady is Miss Kimball.' You must have known her father well, the Reverend Matthew Kimball of the next parish to your own. Gibby smiled. He did not nod, for that would have meant that he did know him, and he did not remember having ever even heard the name of the Reverend Matthew Kimball. Oh, said the lady, who had ceased her battery and stood bewildered and embarrassed, the more that by this time the girls had all gathered round staring and wondering. Geneva's eyes, too, had filled with wonder. She cast them down, and a strange smile began to play about her sweet, strong mouth. All at once she was in the middle of a fairy tale, and had not a notion what was coming next. Her dumb shepherd boy, a baronet, and more wonderful still, a galbraith? She must be dreaming in the wide street. The last she had seen of him was as he was driven from the house by her father, when he had just saved her life. That was but a few weeks ago, and here he was, called Sir Gilbert Galbraith. It was a delicious bit of wonderment. Oh, said Miss Kimball, a second time recovering herself a little, I see a relative, Miss Galbraith. I did not understand. That, of course, sets everything right, at least, even then, the open street, you know. You will understand, Mr. Splatter. I beg your pardon, Silger Gilbert. I hope I did not hurt you with my parasol. Gibby again laughed aloud. Thank you, said Miss Kimball, confused and annoyed with it herself for being so, especially before her girls. I should be sorry to have hurt you. Going to college, I presume, Sir Gilbert? Gibby looked at Mr. Splatter. He is going to study with me for a while first, answered the minister. I'm glad to hear it. He could not do better, said Miss Kimball. Come, girls. And with friendly farewell, she moved on, her train after her, thinking with herself what a bore the young fellow was. The young baronet? Yes, he must be a baronet. He was too young to have been knighted already. But wherever could he have been brought up? 
Mr. Sclatter had behaved judiciously, and taken gentle pains to satisfy the old couple that they must part with Gibby. One of the neighboring clergy knew Mr. Sclatter well, and with him paid the old people a visit to help them to dismiss any lingering doubt that he was the boy's guardian, legally appointed. To their own common sense, indeed, it became plain that, except some such story was true, there could be nothing to induce him to come after Gibby, or desire to take charge of the outcasts. But they did not feel thoroughly satisfied until Mr. Sclatter brought Fergus Stuff to the cottage to testify to him as being what he pretended. It was a sore trial, but amongst the griefs of losing him, no fear of his forgetting them was included. Mr. Sclatter's main difficulty was with Gibby himself. At first he laughed at the absurdity of his going away from his father and mother and the sheep. They told him he was Sir Gilbert Galbraith. He answered on his slate, as well as by signs which Janet at least understood perfectly, that he had told them so, and had been so all the time. And what difference does that make? He added, Mr. Sclatter told him he was, or would be, took care to add, when he came of age, a rich man as well as a baronet. Rich man, wrote Gibby, d as they like, and is bad. Mrs. Mr. Sclatter told him it was only poor boys who could do as they pleased, for the law looked after boys like him, so that, when it came into their hands, they might be capable of using their money properly. Almost persuaded at length that he had no choice, that he could no longer be his own master until he was one and twenty, he turned and looked at Janet, his eyes brimful of tears. She gave him a little nod. He rose and went out, climbed the crests of Glashkar, and did not return to the cottage till midnight. In the morning appeared on his countenance signs of unusual resolve. Amid the many thoughts he had had the night before had come the question what he would do with the money when he had it. First of all, what he could do for Janet and Robert and every one of their family. And naturally enough, to a Scotch boy, the first thing that occurred to him was to give Donald money to go to college like Fergus Duff. And that he knew he made no mistake. It was not so easy to think of things for the rest, but that was safe. Had not Donald said twenty times he would not mind being a herd all his life, if only he could go to college first. But then he began to think what a long time it was before he would be one and twenty, and what a number of things might come and go before then. Donald might be that t by that time have a wife and children, and he could not leave them to go to college. Why should not Mr. Sclatter manage somehow that Donald should go at once? It was now the end, almost of October, and the college opened in November. Some other rich person would lend them that, the money, and he would pay it with compound interest when he got his. Before he went to bed, he got his slate and wrote as follows. My dear minister, if you will take Donald too, and let him go to the college, I will go with you as seems ye like. But if ye will not, I will run away. When Mr. Sclatter, who had a bed at the gamekeeper's, appeared the next morning, anxious to conclude the business and get things in motion for their departure, Gibby handed him the slate the moment he entered the cottage, and while he read, stood watching him. Now Mr. Sclatter was a prudent man, and always looked ahead, therefore apparently took a long time to read Gibby's very clear, although unscholarly, communication, before answering it. He must settle the probability of what Mrs. Sclatter would think of the proposal to take two savages into her house together. 
where also, doubtless, the presence of this Donna would greatly interfere with the process of making a gentleman of Gibby. Unable to satisfy himself, he raised his head at length, unconsciously shaking it as he did so. That instant, Gibby was out of the house. Mr. Sclatter perceived the blunder he had made, hurried after him, but he was already out of sight. Returning in some dismay, he handed the slate to Janet, who, with sad, resigned countenance, was baking. She rubbed the oatmeal dough from her hands, took the slate, and read with a smile, "'Ye mind a tae Gibby for a young cowt, Mr. Splatter, and think to break him in,' she said, after a thoughtful pause, "'or you'll hae to learn your mistake. There's no enough o' himself in him for you to get a grip o' him by that handle. He a kens what he wad hae, and he'll a get it, as sure as I'll a be right.' As am Ned, Donald, Donald's my aim, and I say nothing. Sit ye down, sir. You'll no see Gibby the day again. Is there no means of getting at him, my good woman? said Mr. Sclatter, miserable at the prospect of a day utterly wasted. I could gie ye sight o' him, I dare say, but what better wad ye be for that? Gin ye had a lawyer's o' emplot at your back, ye wouldn't touch Gibby of old Glashgar. But you could persuade him, I'm sure, Mistress Grant. You have only to call him in your own way, and he will come at once. What wad ye hae me persuade him till, sir? To only things that's right, Gibby wants, nay, persuading, and for this, as I twee ye, the ladies are just fear of brothers, and I hae no rights to interfere with what the tain wad for the tither, the thing seeming to me rising in it. What sort of lad is this son of yours? The boy seems much attached to him. He's a laddie, that's been Gwen or Till's book since ever I learnt him to read myself, Janet answered. But he'll be here the night, I'm thinking, to see the last of her Gibby, and ye can judge for yourself. It required but a brief examination of Donald to satisfy Mr. Slatter that he was more than prepared for the university. As to Donald's going to Mr. Slatter's house, Janet soon relieved him. Now, nah, sir, she said, it will be to learn. Was that wanna be fitting a poor lad like him? It would be much safer for him, said Mr. Slatter, but incidentally. Again, I couldn't have in my Donald to as a company and the hunger for better, said his mother. And Donald's face flushed with pleasure at her confidence. Nah, he might get. A garret, roomy, some gate in the town, and there a hard tills book. And y'all let Gabby gang and see him whiles when he can be spared. There, mon, be Manny, a decent woman at what be pleased to take him in. Mr. Slatter seemed to himself to foresee no little trouble in this new responsibility, but consoled himself that he would have more money at his command, and in the end would sit, as it were, at the fountain head of large wealth. Already, with his wife's property, he was a man of consideration, but he had a great respect for money, and much overrated its value as a means of doing even what he could, what he called good. We are not told that the master made the smallest use of money for his end. When he paid the temple rate, he did it to avoid giving offense, and he defended the woman who divinely wasted it. Ten times more grace and magnanimity would be needed wisely and lovingly to avoid making a fortune than it takes to spend one for what are called good objects when it is made. When they met Miss Kimball and her young ladies, they were on their way from the coach office to the minister's house in Dollar Street. 
Gibby knew every corner, and strange was the swift variety of thoughts and sensations that went filling through his mind. Up this same street he attended the wavering steps of a well-known, if not highly respected, town councillor. That was the door where one cold morning of winter the cook gave him a cup of hot coffee and a roll. What happy days they were, with their hunger and adventure! There had always been food and warmth about the city, and he had come in for his share. The master was in its streets, as certainly as on the rocks of Glashgar. Not one sheet did he lose sight of. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic. Thank you.